shouldn't quarrel. Not about this. It's just not important enough. I don't get you. We came up here purely and simply for money. Anything that offers us more money is more important. You still got that all rates deal on your mind, haven't you? Darling, it's $500 a week. Puts me just that much closer to the Kellerman Conservatory. It isn't as though we were splitting up. I'll talk to Aldrich. I'm sure there'd be an important job for you. Like filling the water pitchers? Jimmy. Or pinning up the drinks? Or maybe I could come out ahead of you and give a short talk on how high class we all are. Maybe somewhere along the line we got our signals crossed. You've got it into your head that you're Joan of Arc. Well, get it out fast. You're a swimmer doing a tank act in Sullivan's Water Carnival, and not a bad show either. And how long can it last? After all, all we're doing is capitalizing on a lot of cheap bathing suit publicity. Well, what do you think this Aldrich thing is anyway? All he's trying to do is cash in on the same dodge, a ballyhoo that I arranged. You arranged? Sure, who do you think got the cop to arrest you? Oh, no, Jimmy, you didn't. Didn't I? Can you stand there? What about all that talk of a crusade and... Bunk. Who cares what a lot of females wear on the beach? As long as I can keep you in a one-piece bathing suit. Baby, you're a swimmer. You belong in the water. Wet, you're terrific. Dry, you're just a nice girl who ought to settle down and get married. Thank you very much for the advice. One thing I know for sure. If and when I do get married, it will never be to a, a cheap, stubborn flea circus proprietor. You're listening to episode 96 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Esther Williams was at the height of her star power when she made Million Dollar Mermaid in 1952. In her lavish aquatic musicals, she was the face of sunny American optimism. Despite the persistent danger she encountered on the set, a troubled marriage, and grief from the front office, Esther had one of the most unique screen images of the studio era. While her box office reign lasted, she embodied resilience, strength, and a robust sexuality. The production code administration viewed the water as a protective barrier for Esther's virtue. Esther touched men in the pool with an intimacy that would never have been permitted by a screen siren on dry land. Esther's pictures made an estimated $80 million at the box office for MGM. Her pictures were top of the box office because of her winsome appeal and athletic talent. Esther had a lasting impact on the Olympics through her campaign to add synchronized swimming to the games. Esther's legacy continues today as audiences flock to see an homage to her swim pretty style in the recently released In the Heights or with the Coen brothers' Hail Caesar. Esther had assembled a team for a winning formula. It began with Sam Katz, the MGM executive who supervised the gigantic water tank that was built on stage 30, which became Esther's home for a decade. Esther's pool was a marvel of modern plumbing. It was 90 feet wide, 90 feet long, and 25 feet deep. It held an array of hoses, spray jets, fountains, and it had a pedestal in the center that raised up into the air. It housed a pyrotechnic component where bursts of flame could rise behind the water. 
It had windows underneath cut out for the cameras. Innovations in camera lenses over the years advanced from the initial murky, murky shots that you see beneath the surface and bathing beauty to shots that were so crystal clear, preview audiences didn't believe some scenes were actually shot underwater. Esther's tank cost $250,000 when it was built in 1944. It was a clear signal that MGM had invested in her future on screen. Esther found smooth waters with Joe Pasternak, who had made his reputation by discovering Deanna Durbin, whose pictures saved Universal Studio from bankruptcy. Esther believed that Joe understood her apple pie appeal and gave her screen longevity. Joe recalled that of all the stars he worked with, Esther was the only one he knew who really followed the good advice of leaving your problems at the studio at the end of every day, maybe because she had too many problems waiting for her at home. Dorothy Kingsley was the screenwriter who clicked with Esther's water ballets. Most often, Kingsley crafted a mismatched lover's story around the aqua musicals. Kingsley also listened to feedback and didn't turn surly when Esther wanted to rewrite a scene, say, for example, with Lucille Ball in Easy to Wed. Directors were often an unknown quantity for Esther. Sometimes they were fractious, like with Dick Thorpe, but George Sidney was a good fit. Esther had a trained corps of dancers who performed the synchronized swimming routines. She noted it was easier to show dancers how to swim pretty than to teach a swimmer how to dance. Costume designer Helen Rose dressed Esther for 13 pictures. Over the years, innovations in swimsuit design improved dramatically. Initially, Esther's suits contained zippers to keep their shape. They were made of wool or cotton. What looked good in the wardrobe department often wasn't functional or didn't look good in the water. Fabric became too heavy and dragged Esther to the bottom. Helen Rose noted that Esther had the greatest zest for life and stamina to match among all the MGM starlets. Helen used to call Esther the resident psychologist because Esther could size up any situation accurately. Helen also recalled that Esther took no nonsense from anyone in the studio, the boss included. Both Esther and Helen depended upon Inez Schrote, whom Esther called Schrody. Inez was a corset maker hired by MGM to make undergarments for the stars. She designed bras that best accentuated each woman's figure. Inez made Esther swimsuits. They were expensive and required multiple fittings, but Esther was relieved when they got what she called Lastex Net, which made suits that were lightweight and looked good on screen. Flossie Hackett was Esther's wardrobe lady. Flossie would save Esther's life one day on set. I'll tell you about that later in the episode. Esther's flawless appearance on screen needed one basic element, grease. Lots and lots of grease. Esther's hair and makeup had to be durable enough to last a long day of shooting in the water tank. The hair department, under the supervision of Sidney Gwilleroff, devised a system. They put her shoulder-length hair into small braids. 
On top, they put a layer of braided hair extensions attached by a double clip that was shaped like a crowbar. The crowbar clipped in the center, which over time left permanent welts on Esther's scalp. Hairdressers coated Esther's real and fake hair with a mixture of baby oil and Vaseline. The makeup department run by Bill Tuttle experimented with various cosmetic bases for her body, most of which washed off and left a sludge in the pool. They finally settled on a thick cream-based foundation that was waterproof when left to dry and set. Esther often wore a fake nose in underwater scenes so that diving shots wouldn't be lost to air bubbles. In her last water ballet, Jupiter's Darling, Esther wore both a prosthetic nose and a prosthetic ear due to a broken eardrum. Esther endured over half a dozen broken eardrums during her tenure in MGM. She spent so much time underwater that it was inevitable. Esther noted that by the time she hit the water each day, she was as waterproof as a mallard. Since aquatic styling was brand new for the studio, there were complications. One day, Esther arrived on set slathered in grease, only to have the director say that they were shooting dry that day. That meant she had to rush back to the dressing room and take it all off quickly. The hair and makeup team tried everything they could to remove it quickly. One hairdresser put a rubber-based solvent on Esther's hair, and when that made her hair harden into a helmet, they panicked and doused her in acetone. Esther said it was like they dipped her hair in nail polish remover. The welts on her scalp from the hair extensions burnt raw. She was astonished that all of her hair didn't fall out that day. The studio pulled out all the stops when they put one-piece bathing suit on the production schedule. That was the initial title MGM used for the biopic about Annette Kellerman, the Australian swimmer who set records and became a star in the New York Hippodrome. Instead of Joe Pasternak, Arthur Hornblow was assigned as producer. Hornblow had a highbrow reputation in Hollywood from his Ivy League education, the prestige pictures he made, and as ex-husband to MGM queen Myrna Loy. Esther was excited. She'd been tired of the thin romantic comedies and was geared up for an important role. Mervyn Leroy signed on to direct. He was hot on the heels of the epic Quo Vadis shot in Rome. Esther soon wondered if he hadn't accepted the assignment because he was looking for an easier project than that strenuous shoot he had overseas. Esther was often disappointed with Mervyn's style on the set. Before a scene, she would look to him for a bit of guidance, and he would merely say, let's have a nice little scene. Still, Esther felt good with Mervyn directing because he had a reputation for pictures that were both critically and commercially successful. Also, he hated the new studio head of production, Dory Sherry, as much as Esther did. When Esther learned that the studio had cast Victor Mature as her co-star, playing the role of Jimmy Sullivan, she was pleasantly surprised. He was known in the film colony for being a popular escort with stars such as Betty Grable and Rita Hayworth, 
Plus, Vic had a commanding physical presence. Esther didn't have to worry about being too tall for her co-star. The pleasure she took with her co-star is visible on screen. Esther noted that she didn't have to teach him anything, in or out of the pool. Vic did have a telltale reaction to stress. Whenever he had too many lines in a scene or he felt nervous during a shoot, his hands and feet became swollen. Naturally, it was uncomfortable. Vic would take his shoes off to relieve the pressure. Sometimes they would have to delay production because the swelling was obvious on camera. Vic Mature's weak spot only endeared him more to Esther. She was crazy about him and the hot sex they had together off screen. They began an affair, consummated in Esther's red, white, and blue dressing room. Vic's brawny silhouette offered an escape from a dull marriage to Ben Gage, a man who squandered every cent she earned, lived on the golf course, and thought life was a perpetual happy hour. I always give bonus points to leading men like Vic Mature for leaving a star well satisfied. He was a great match for Esther. They enjoyed each other without any question of what would happen next. In her memoir, Esther admitted that when they hooked up, it was even better than she had fantasized. She often stood trembling in her dressing room, waiting for his knock on the door. You can see how comfortable Esther is with him on screen during the scene set at the beach in Boston after a public outcry erupts when Esther, as Annette Kellerman, appears in a man's one-piece swimsuit. The crowd gawps at Esther as she attempts to make a long-distance swim. She's sleek and modern, clad in a black suit with bare arms and legs. Meanwhile, the women on the beach look like extras from a Dickens picture. They wear heavy ruffled bloomers, stockings, tunics, shoes, shawls, and everything laden with enough bows and trim to sink them like a stone would they put a toe in the water. As the angry crowd circle Esther, she clings to Vic, finds solace against his big chest and shoulders like she's used to being in the crook of his arm. In real life, Annette Kellerman had modified her swimsuit to appease a public morals outcry where she fought in court, as Esther does in the MGM treatment. Esther appears in a men's swimsuit with a pair of dark stockings attached. She's essentially wearing a bodysuit for swimming exhibitions in a carnival sideshow. In many ways, Million Dollar Mermaid is Esther's best picture. Swimming is hardwired into the story rather than tacked onto the plot. Dramatic scenes showcase Esther as an actress, not just a swimmer. During her row with Vic in the dressing room, backstage in Sullivan's Carnival, is my favorite scene in the picture. The scene is really timeless. It's the struggle between a woman and a man. You could set it in any decade and it works. Esther's Annette had been offered a job in a lecture tour with a ballet performance included. Vic Mature's Jimmy objects. The conflict is based on their different perceptions about who she is and what she does and its value. She wants meaningful work and a longevity outside of what she views as some publicity racket. 
In her diving routine, she says, they're capitalizing on a swimsuit. She's bigger than that. She wants more than that. While the scene unfolds, they go from embracing, again, Esther cleaves to Vic Mature when he enters the dressing room. She starts to finish dressing as they talk, which suggests a greater intimacy between the two, as though they were lovers and this was a familiar scene of dress and undress. She buttons up a smashing pearl gray vest over a mauve blouse, probably designed by Walter Plunkett. She's trying to define herself as she dresses. Vic doesn't want her to leave the show. He wants her to stay, but his reason isn't romantic or sexual. He's all business. He admits he paid the cop to arrest her on the beach in Boston. He engineered this publicity gambit that launched her career in show business. And he's not going to just hand her off to someone else to make money. He's given her a song and dance about a crusade for women's rights, but really the whole thing is just a way to make a buck. Vic is wearing a burgundy turtleneck sweater. Isn't there something about a man in a turtleneck that's just so arrogant? Maybe it's a Freudian phallic thing. I don't know. Anyway, he's standing there in her dressing room and he dares to define her, to tell her what she can do and put limits on it. He tells her that wet, you're terrific. Dry, you're just a nice girl who ought to settle down and get married. Could you be any more patronizing? He echoes that horrible quote attributed to Fanny Bryce about Esther, where she said, wet, she's a star, dry, she ain't. Without the gimmick, without him, she's just another woman. That's what he's saying. A woman should just get married and give up a life outside the home. How many men, do you think, said something like this to Esther? I can feel how angry she must be at some man who thinks he could tell her who she is or what she can do. Esther Williams could do what no one else in the studio could. For example, each underwater sequence she filmed took a long time to shoot. Cameramen held up cards at the window cut out in the bottom with the time they had scheduled. The card might say 45 seconds. But a 45-second scene underwater might take all day underwater to film and require multiple takes. Esther would fill her lungs and swim to the bottom over and over again. The repetitive dives increased her lung capacity over the course of the day. She could hold her breath for a longer period at 4 o'clock than she could when cameras first rolled at 9 a.m., but it probably isn't a good idea to hold your breath all day. At one point during production of Million Dollar Mermaid, the script called for Esther to swim around a prop clamshell on the floor of the tank. She became disoriented. Esther went into a trance. Swimmers call it the rapture. It's what happens before you drown. The body has too much carbon dioxide and too little oxygen. Esther used the clamshell as a pillow and was ready to take a long nap. The rapture lulls you to sleep. Mervyn Leroy was watching through the window. He didn't know his star was drowning. He started yelling into the underwater speaker, telling Esther to get up. Finally, she rallied and floated to the surface, but she could have died. No one in the studio seemed to realize how often Esther was in harm's way.
Busby Berkeley joined the production after Esther begged Mervyn to sign him to design big numbers. Mervyn was only too glad to pass the intricate choreography off to someone else. Buzz, as he was called, had directed Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1949, which turned out to be a nightmare for Esther, but mostly because of Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, not Busby Berkeley. Buzz signed to stage the Fountain and Smoke numbers, which are listed in the opening credits. For the smoke number, Buzz had created a circus theme with tra- trapeze dives. Esther wears a fire red suit with a headband shaped like flames. Her aqua chorus is dressed in lemon yellow suits with headbands to match. The chorines slide down into the pool between the legs of the aqua hunks, who are dressed in tiny swim trunks. You can't help but think about how he has reversed the camera dynamic from his pre-code musicals, which were often upskirt angles. The smoke number is a showstopper. 400 smudge pots released billowing plumes of red and yellow smoke. Esther glides down the slide, standing up. What balance! In the pool, her stroke looks so strong, it's like she has a motor on her feet. Graceful as a swan, she rises out of the water on a platform lit with sparklers for a dynamite finale. The Coen brothers staged the same thing for Scarlett Johansson and Hal Caesar. Esther was terrified on the trapeze dives during the smoke number. First, the aqua chorus and then the aqua hunks die from the trapeze swings and Esther follows. Then she's lifted by a ring to the roof of the soundstage. It must be at least 50 feet up there. At the top of the building, Esther developed vertigo. She felt dizzy. There was so much smoke in the air, which she hadn't expected, that she couldn't see the pool. What if she missed the mark and hit cement? She hesitated. Buzz roared at her to jump. When Esther replied that she couldn't see the water, he snapped she knew where it was. He gave this piece of advice. Just don't drive, dive cro- crooked. She let go of the ring and cuts through the air like a missile. The fountain number was even more dangerous. Rising from the waterfalls in the fountain number, Esther looks like Aphrodite stepping from the waves. She's wearing a gold bodysuit made of 50,000 sequins with a gold turban and crown to match. She is a regal goddess in her element. Esther was supposed to die from her platform in the center of the pool. It didn't feel right. Mid-air, she realized what the problem was. Her swimming leotard felt like chain mail from the weight of the sequins, and her crown was made of tin. It was too heavy. On impact with the water, her head snapped back. Esther heard a pop in her neck. The call for lunch came. Once Esther was in the water, everyone immediately scattered. When she surfaced, she could paddle her feet, but Esther could not move her arms or shoulders. Floating, she saw only Flossie Hackett, her wardrobe lady. Esther had to convince Flossie that she needed help to get out of the pool. Flossie found two big men who fished Esther out of the pool and carried her to her dressing room. While they waited for the ambulance, Flossie did her job. She unrolled the bodysuit like a pair of stockings. And the sequins were sharp. They tore Esther's skin. Flossie was probably thinking it was too expensive to cut off and she'd be sacked if she did. 
Tests in the hospital found three broken vertebrae in her neck. Doctors put her in a full-body cast. Esther wore the cast for six months while production was put on hold. Million Dollar Mermaid opened on the 5th of December 1952 in Radio City Music Hall and played there for eight weeks. It was a huge hit at the box office. Afterwards, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association named her Star of the Year. She broke her neck, but at least it was worth it at the box office. Although Maria Tallchief doesn't have much screen time, she is a standout and worth a few minutes here. In the role of Pavlova, the Russian ballerina who headlined in the Hippodrome, Maria Tallchief was America's prima ballerina. She had been studying ballet since she was a toddler in Fairfax, Oklahoma, where her father owned the local cinema. The Tallchief family and the Osage community were prosperous from oil-rich land. Shortly before Maria's birth, a series of murders began, which became known as the Osage Massacre, from the 1920s through to the next decade. Most often, it was a case of white men who married Osage women and then killed their brides for head rights to the annual oil profits. Members of Maria's own family were murdered for their head rights. The tall chiefs moved to Beverly Hills for access to better dance lessons and opportunities for Maria and her sister. The girls studied under Madame Nijinska, Nijinsky's sister. At 17, Maria moved on her own to New York City to join the Ballet Russe Company. She became a protege of George Balanchine in the American Ballet Society, which later became the New York City Ballet. Balanchine proposed to Maria when she was 20 years old. He was twice her age. Maria accepted but had little experience with men. Balanchine reserved all of his passion for the stage rather than the bedroom. He worked incessantly and expected the same of Maria. With Balanchine, Maria danced 14 hours a day. They didn't take holidays. Even when he scheduled time away, he would have a rehearsal space booked somewhere and would have her in toe shoes practicing. There was no separation between her personal and professional life. Director Mervyn Leroy rang Maria after watching her perform on television and asked her to join Million Dollar Mermaid. Maria asked Balanchine to coach her for the role in the picture since they worked so closely together, even though by this time they were about to be divorced. George said no. He suggested she consult Muriel Stewart, who had been Pavlova's understudy, and Muriel taught Maria how to copy Pavlova's style for the picture. Maria had worked in Hollywood before, playing an extra in presenting Lily Mars, but with featured billing, the process was much more complicated. A studio car arrived at 5 a.m. to take her into hair and makeup. MGM did hair and makeup tests, then sent Maria to consult with the producer, Arthur Hornblow, and director Mervyn Leroy. After Maria performed The Dying Swan in the studio, a signature piece from Pavlova, both Hornblow and Leroy thought it was too dull. Hornblow asked if she couldn't substitute Firebird, which had been one of Maria's biggest triumphs on stage with the New York City Ballet. Firebird wasn't historically accurate, but Maria figured the men knew what works best for the pictures and agreed. Maria danced Firebird 
over and over again. The camera shot her from every possible angle. In between shots, a crew member came on stage to polish away the marks she left on the floor. All of this polishing made the floor really slippery. Maria risked a fall. Luckily, she had taped rubber strips to the bottom of her toe shoes, as she had learned to do for television um, appearances. During a break, Maria sat and darned her toe shoes until an assistant director interrupted and told her that was a job for wardrobe. Maria explained that dancers always darn their own shoes. It was a conflict between studio union and ballet tradition. For all of her work, only a few seconds of Maria dancing appears on the screen. After the preview, Mervyn Leroy sent a note to tell her about the comment cards, which contained many requests for more Maria Tallchief. By the time Esther Williams was 19 years old and finally agreed to meet with Louis B. Mayer, she had already won several important battles. The first bully she dispatched was one inside her home. Esther's brother Stanton had been a child star of the stage and screen. He died tragically young when he was only 16. Esther was eight years old at the time. She began swimming as a way to cope with her grief and hoped that one day she could support her family the way her brother had. When Esther was 13 years old, her parents took in a boy, an honor student, and captain of the football team at the local high school. The 16-year-old Buddy McClure had become an orphan and lived alone in a shabby flat. Esther's parents took Buddy in and made him part of the family. He filled the gap left behind when Stanton died far too young. Not long after he moved in, Stanton attacked and raped Esther one night while she was asleep in her bed. Esther didn't know how to talk to her parents about what had happened. Her mother and father adored Buddy. Buddy continued to rape Esther for two years. Finally, she told her mother, Mrs. Williams and her husband seemed more upset about losing Buddy than what Buddy had been doing to their daughter. Buddy admitted to them what he had done. He promised it wouldn't happen again. He wanted to stay with the family. Esther stormed out of the house and went to the pool. Buddy followed. He knew where her safe place was. Now that the truth was out, he was desperate and promised Esther he would never touch her again if she let him stay in the house. Esther had begun swimming when she was eight years old, and now at 15, Esther was a swimming champion. She won local and state competitions and received notice by the press. Swimming had made her body strong and muscular. She felt that she had to stand up to him no matter what happened. She told Buddy he would never touch her again and that he had to move out now. It wasn't his house anymore. Buddy fell on his knees and pleaded with her to let him stay. Esther stopped in the moment and took notice. So this is what happens when you stand up to a bully. It was a lesson that stayed with Esther for the rest of her life. Esther had more bullies to defeat. There was the shady agent who signed Esther to an illegal contract for 20% of her earnings, but who wound up taking much more once she signed to star in Billy Rose's Aquacade. Her swim coach was in on the deal with the shady agent and tossed Esther's invitation to the South American swim meet out the window. 
Billy Rose had set up a tawdry hotel room scene where she was the dessert. Esther narrowly escaped and learned to always carry taxi fare in her purse. Her Aquacade co-star, Johnny Weissmuller, whipped out his erection backstage during each show and tried to rip her suit off every night. And Morton Downey, the Aquacade MC, whispered X-rated comments in her ear before she entered the water every night. Downey did tell her that the agent she hired was ripping her off. The agent, he told her, made $500 a week, while Esther was only receiving $125 to star in the show. Before the show ended, Esther married a medical student. She was naive enough to believe that being married would protect her from the wolves. She took a job in a high-end apartment store, iMagnon, when the show closed. MGM came calling based on the publicity she had received from the Aquacade. Esther said no to a meeting with Mayer for one year until she thought that maybe the $76 she made each month in iMagnon might be insufficient if she were to continue to support a husband in medical school. Esther said no to Mayer and his emissaries for one year before she finally agreed to meet. The Culver City Lion wasn't used to teenage girls who brushed off an MGM contract. It only made him keen to sign her. Mayer wanted an answer to Sonia Henney over in Fox. Mayer had barked, melt the ice, get a swimmer, make it pretty. When she arrived in the studio, Mayer sat behind his big white desk at the end of his long office. He was flanked by Eddie Mannix and the usual suspects. Esther listened to their pitch. What she really wanted to know was what kind of dressing room they provided for stars. She already saw what Billy Rose's version was, a broken mirror and a wobbly stool. Mannix took her on the store of the gigantic studio, and then he showed her the star dressing rooms. He took her into Greer Garson's. Esther looked around and said to herself, I want this for me. Esther signed a contract in October 1941 for $350 a week. She dumped her crooked agent and her lousy husband. A clause in her contract said that the studio couldn't cast her in a picture for nine months. Esther figured it took nine months to have a baby, so she would need the same amount of time to learn how to make a picture. Esther looked at MGM as a finishing school. She might not be a success in pictures, but if she applied herself to their lessons, she could emerge as an MGM lady. She would be polished and elegant. Jeanette Bates taught Esther how to walk, sit, and stand. Jeanette showed her how to walk down the stairs in heels without, without looking at her feet. Gertrude Foster was her voice coach, Harriet Lee her singing coach. Lillian Burns, her drama coach. Although Esther didn't think Lillian's acting techniques were a good match for her, she still internalized some of those lessons, such as how to square your shoulders and flare your nostrils during an angry scene. She responded better to Lillian's husband, the director George Sidney. George would say something to her before a scene to get the right emotional pitch, something like, has any man ever tried to take off your swimsuit? And presto, Esther was enraged thinking about Johnny Weissmuller and the Aquacade. 
three weeks into her contract, Esther had to say no when Louis B. Mayer tried to cast her in Somewhere I'll Find You next to Clark Gable. She was afraid she couldn't carry a leading role just yet. She wasn't ready. Mayer wanted to use Esther as a threat against Lana Turner, who had gotten married behind his back to Artie Shaw without asking. Lana was the epitome of glamour as far as Esther was concerned. Esther didn't want to do the part, but she took the screen test. Gable actually showed up to do the test. He brought along Carol Lombard, who sat and watched while her husband ignored the script and overwhelmed a starstruck teenager. Gable kissed Esther three times, each time longer than the last. When they finished, he swaggered away, telling Carol in front of Esther and everyone on set, I told you I was going to kiss me a mermaid today. Esther was composed in Mayer's office when she turned down the part. When the predictable fireworks ensued, Esther remained calm. Esther repeated that he needed to check her contract. He couldn't cast her yet. Ida Coverman, Mayer's executive assistant, always alert, hurried in with a copy of Esther's contract to put an end to his histrionics. A few years later, armed with box office clout, Esther won a major victory over Louis B. Mayer. She had been approached by Cole Swimsuits. They offered Esther a lucrative endorsement deal as their spokeswoman. She was getting ready to film Neptune's Daughter. Cole offered her a deal that paid about the same as her contract with MGM at the time, $150,000 a year. Howard Strickling, head of publicity, had told Esther she should request a meeting and ask him in person. Esther's deal broke protocol. In MGM and other studios, star endorsements were part of their publicity duties. They didn't get paid extra. They appeared in magazine ads for soap or cigarettes or what have you, and the studio benefited either by a fee or or with publicity for the studio and picture release. If Cole wanted her name and likeness to promote their new swimwear, she thought, then she should get paid for it. Mayer saw it another way. In their meeting, he pulled out all the stops to object. He pounded his fists on the desk, threw telephones, hollered. Then the crocodile tears flowed, aghast at her ingratitude. He rolled on the floor and foamed at the mouth. Esther was pregnant at the time. Maybe her maternal instincts kicked into overdrive. Instead of cowering and seeing a scary mogul, she saw a toddler having a tantrum. She spoke to the 50-something boy on the floor and calmly told him that he could not yell at her anymore. Mayer asked, why not? Esther continued with this line of thought. You can't yell at me, she told him, because you can't beat me to the end of the pool. Mayer pressed pause on his theatrics. He sat up and asked for an explanation. It was like they were both at the edge of the pool, she told him. The referee would shout, swimmers on your mark. She would beat him to the end of the pool so he couldn't raise his voice with her anymore. He would have to behave. Esther didn't tremble. She didn't shout. She stayed calm and made him act like an adult. Esther didn't wait for his approval. She did it anyway. Esther learned early on that the only way to meet a bully is straight on, to hold your ground and stand up for yourself. 
Esther Williams escaped grievous bodily harm while filming her Aqua musicals in MGM. On more than one occasion, she nearly died. Esther had the rude awakening that no one in the studio was really concerned about the risks she took, nor would they protect her safety. She had to look out for herself. She escaped being dashed against coral reefs in Hawaii during Pagan Love Song. She survived a set for Texas Carnival that was basically a black coffin. They put a roof on her pool and she couldn't find the trap door. She nearly drowned. And then in Million Dollar Mermaid, she survived the rapture, a dangerous dive, and a broken neck. Esther survived three bad marriages to men who wanted to spend what she earned and have her weight on them hand and foot. She survived their abuse, bounced back from bankruptcy. She campaigned for synchronized swimming, sold a line of bathing suits and swimming pools. She made videos about how to make children water safe. Esther Williams was a prime example of how physical fit fitness builds self-confidence in women. Watching Esther in the water, you can tell she's nobody's doormat. The following books helped me to write the episode. Million Dollar Mermaid by Esther Williams with Dig B Digby Deal published in 1999. Maria Tallchief, America's Prima Ballerina by Maria Tallchief with Larry Kaplan published in 1997. You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet, Interviews with Stars from Hollywood's Golden Era by James Bauden and Ron Miller, contains interviews with both Esther Williams and Vic Mature, published in 2017. Just Make Them Beautiful by Helen Rose, published in 1976. Mervyn Leroy, Take One by Mervyn Leroy, published in 1974. Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley by Jeff Spivak, published in 2010. Join me next time when I talk about Doris Day and Romance on the High Seas from 1947. Also, a quick note to say I've started a Patreon page if you'd like to support my next venture. I'm writing a script for a podcast series about beauty operators in 1933 that will premiere in the fall, and I'd like to be able to pay the cast members something. Thanks for listening, and also if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a nice review on iTunes. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.